champ pierre, il se passe par le champ Oh c'est pas un cas quand le champ pierre Tu n'es ni de champ pierre, il se passe par le champ Et champ pierre, il t'en Good morning, everybody. This is another edition of the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Aloysius Church in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And I don't know, sometimes I give off the vibes that I'm not necessarily in the best mood. Today, as the show gets started, we're having a hard time getting the banner up. And I'm thinking of things that really are starting to get under my skin. And if you look at the levity and the extreme level that society is pushing for this cancel culture. I'm going to get off my chest why in a little bit. Um, the Elam ending is something that the NBA is going to use in its all-star game again. I'll describe that a little bit. And we'll talk about whether it does make some sense in any form of competitive basketball. But a couple shows ago, I didn't get to finish my MLB team previews. I didn't get to break down the National League and I also didn't get to the point where we have exactly 2,430 wins and 2,430 losses over the course of a 162 game season, which is what we plan to have in the 2021 season. There's been no expectation that there's going to be any sort of delight. Um, maybe a good thing if you were going to bet is there going to be exactly 162 games played by each team? You know, in a regular season, with all things equal, and sometimes there isn't. So maybe that's a situation where, hey, games may get postponed over a course of a season, and there may not be any um, imperativeness or need or necessity to make them up. And I think, as opposed to other years past, baseball will be more inclined to not reschedule a game if it's not necessary. But I'm doing my predictions as I've done every year since 2011 and factoring in that there's going to be exactly 2,430 games played. Zero games are going to end in a tie and there's going to be exactly 2,430 wins and 2,430 losses. We talked about the American League and I'll breeze through it real quick. To give my predictions, I got in the American League East, I got the Yankees at 98 and 64. I got the Blue Jays at 86 and 76. The Red Sox at 81 and 81. The Rays at 74 and 88. And the Orioles at 65 and 97. In the Central, I got the White Sox at an American League best 102 and 60. The Twins at 90 and 72. The Indians at 79 and 83, the Royals at 68 and 94, and the Tigers at 68 and 94. And in the American League West, we have the Angels at 91 and 71, the Astros at 81 and 81, the Mariners at 79 and 83, the Athletics at 77 and 85, and the Texas Rangers at 63 and 99. Best team in the American League. The Chicago White Sox, the worst team in the American League, the Texas Rangers. The three division winners are the Yankees, White Sox, and Angels. And the two wild card winners are the Twins with the number one wild card spot and the Blue Jays with the number two wild card spot. So we didn't get to really break down the National League at all. And as I just got back from spring training in Port St. Lucie, Florida, 
Saw two games in Port St. Lucie, one in Jupiter. One of the things that stand out to me as I take a step away from being a baseball analyst for a second, following the New York Mets, because, you know, no matter what kind of analyst you are, no matter how much you love the sport, no matter how much you bring to the entire sport as opposed to an individual team, it's fair enough to say that every one of us has the right to have a particular team that we root for. And I haven't, I haven't been shy in the fact that I root for the Mets. doesn't mean I think the Mets are better than any uh, other team. In fact, I've been criticized in, in many situations for not giving the Mets enough credit or not starting a season thinking that the New York Mets are going to go out there and win the World Series. And I don't think they're winning a division uh, in the National League East in 2021. And it's not be me picking on them. It's not me not being a good enough fan. It's me trying to objectively expect what it is that I can see. Now, I understand if you're if you're a fan and that's all you care about is that individual team, you've got every right to be excited. you got every right to think that the best of the best things can happen. Francisco Lindor was an excellent acquisition by the Mets. Carlos Carrasco, Taiwan Walker, Marcus Stroman are going to add some important depth to the New York Mets starting rotation. Um, their lineup is built to score runs. Now, from Brandon Nimmo to J.D. Davis playing third, they have a solid one through eight. And obviously, there's going to be no designated hitter, so I think that is going to hurt them a little bit defensively. Playing Brandon Nimmo in center field, at some point, he's going to get exposed. Playing Dominic Smith in left field, at some point, is not going to give you the best from a defensive standpoint in regards to trying to prevent runs. That being said, this is a good team. A team that can score runs. A team that's going to have good starting pitching. But what has been the Mets' problem over the last couple of years? Going back to the last time they made it to the postseason in 2016, it's Achilles' heel is its bullpen. And its bullpen didn't get any better. Trevor May is active on social media. And I'm pretty confident that Trevor May is going to be a a good and welcomed addition to the Mets' bullpen. That being said, if you're looking at the Mets bullpen from 2020, if you're looking at the Mets bullpen from 2019, which, by the way, not only was the worst bullpen in Major League Baseball, may have been one of the worst bullpens in the history of Major League Baseball. It was that bad. And what do you have in 2021? An essential rollover of the same pitchers that are back from 2019. There's Edwin Diaz. There's Jairus Familia. There's Robert Gesellman. Seth Lugo is out, and hopefully he comes back soon. Seth Lugo has probably been the best Mets reliever over the last couple seasons, even though he got thrown into the starting rotation and ended up, if you look at his numbers for 2020, they were not very good. But Seth Lugo would be a positive addition to this team, but he's hurt right now. So the Mets who didn't feel the sense of urgency to add to their bullpen are going to have their bullpen be their biggest weakness once again for this season. And listen, there's ways around it. If you want to be tough and you want to release Juris Familia, you want to release Dylan Batances, you want to release Robert Gesellman, all right, well, the question would be, who are you replacing those guys with? Because those guys in the, in the bullpen is an absolute liability to the team and to the fans. So if you do decide to move on from them, 
It's not like the Mets are active with trying to bring in other pitchers. Shane Green's still a free agent. Nobody signed him. He'd be a perfect perfect fit for the Mets and a lot of other teams. But I looked at the Mets' bullpen, and it is so bad. If you're thinking about Jarrett's familiar, he's not going to be able to find the strike zone. His ball's going to move all over the place. He's going to walk at least two guys every inning. Dallin Betances, who had such success with the Yankees because his fastball was in a 97, 98-mile-an-hour range, is now throwing about 92, 93 tops. That's not going to work. Robert Gesellman, who the experiment they had in 2018 when they put him in a bullpen, has been proven to be an unequivocal failure. If you're going to put these three guys in your bullpen, you can't hide them. And that's also expecting a lot more out of Edwin Diaz, expecting a lot more out of Trevor Met. Trevor May is going to come over here, and he might be asked to pitch in 100 games, especially if he's any good, because none of the other, these other guys are. Seth Lugo is going to be out. I think you could reasonably expect Aaron Loop to be okay. But the Mets' bullpen is so bad, it's able to take what looks like it's been a good thing, and the Mets did have a good offseason, but it's making this team not good enough to make the playoffs in the National League this year. So I think of the Braves and I think of the Nationals. And I don't necessarily love either one of those teams' bullpens either. I think there could be flaws. The Braves, who had a very good bullpen last year, let Mark Melanson walk, which I don't think helps them. And they didn't really go out there and replace them. Darren O'Day is with the Yankees now. One of the things the Braves had, they may not have necessarily had superstars in their bullpen, but they had a ton of depth. They had guys that they could rely on to pitch in multiple roles. If Mark Melanson had pitched two days in a row, they could you know, trust themselves to a Shane Green. They could trust themselves to a, a Chris Martin. Darren O'Day could pitch in multiple roles. Will Smith could be a closer. He could be the seventh inning guy. That's why I like the Braves' bullpen last year. Now, listen, they're, they're missing a couple pieces. They could still go out there and sign Shane Green. Melanson isn't there. O'Day isn't there. I think of the Nationals, who signed Brad Hand away from apparently the Mets. You always hear a lot of, you know, the key of the Mets offseason. And you talk about, hey, in the end, getting Lindor, getting Carrasco, signing Taiwan Walker, or Trevor May. Those were all good moves. And overall, you'd say it was a good offseason. But one of the keys to the New York Mets offseason is, hey, we finished second place to this guy. They finished second place to Trevor Bauer. They finished second place to George Springer. They finished second place to Brad Hand. You know, in regards to the Nationals taking them. Now, I look at the Nationals bullpen, Daniel Hudson. You know, they do have a couple decent arms over there. I don't think their bullpen is much better than the Mets. But I take the Nationals bullpen over the Mets bullpen. I mean, think about it. Unless the Mets pitchers are going to go out there and their starters are going to pitch seven innings every game, it's, it's going to be a tough you know, seventh, eighth, and ninth inning to watch. Imagine having to see a familiar or a Batances every game. Imagine having to see Edwin Diaz in every you know, safe situation. It's scary. Now, I know Edwin Diaz had a good year last year, and I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. Sometimes it takes a little adjustment to pitch in the city of New York, and you look at his performance in the 2019 season, and it couldn't have been any worse. He was much better last year. He had some good numbers. He looked solid. He blew some saves, 
but he had a good season. And the question is going to be, is he closer to the 2018 version or is he closer to the 2019 version, which he was awful? He's going to be the key to the Mets bullpen being any good this year. And you're going to need him to be able to pick up every save in the ninth inning. Every game that's tight, you're going to have to see Edwin Diaz pitching. So you're looking at Edwin Diaz, who you know is not really trained to pitch 80 times over the course of the season. You're probably going to need him to do that. And you can't trust Familia, you can't trust Batances, and you can't trust Gesellman. There's three pitchers that you're almost going to be forced to have to carry on your roster. Now, listen, if you release all three, you're going to have other options. Maybe a Sam McWilliams could be okay. Maybe a Trevor Hildenberger can be all right. Some different guys that they signed. You know, you know I, I said from for years that I like Mike Montgomery. I think he is uh, uh, he still has a future in his game, even though the future is kind of it's kind of getting a little close to the end for him to prove something. But I hate the best bullpen. <coughs> and I think it's really going to be bad. And I think it's going to be what's going to cost this team this year. But that being said, I still see 88 wins being reasonable. That's two more wins that they had in 2019. It's a good season. And it is a season that probably fits the description of this roster that you have right here. Now, can the Mets go out there and make their bullpen better? Yeah, absolutely. That's what the trading deadline's for. But you can blow a bunch of games in April, and you say, yeah, you got that expression, you can't win a World Series in April, but you can sure lose it. You can sure lose enough games to kind of put yourself out of the mix. Now, you look at the Washington Nationals who were 39 and 51 in 2019 and ended up going on a great run, making the playoffs, winning the World Series. That doesn't happen too often. Think of what the Mets were in 1969. Think of what the Boston Braves were in 1914, how many games they were out when they decided to go on a run. Those stories are well publicized, but it's not the norm. I got the Braves winning 93 games and the Nationals winning 91. So the Mets finished five games out, three games out of the second wildcard spot. And I think one thing that's going to hurt the Mets, too, is the fact that the Phillies are not going to be that bad. People like to knock the Phillies. People like to say, hey, they went out there, they signed Bryce Harper, and now they signed JT Real Muto to the long-term extension. They brought in Zach Wheeler. They seem to be spending the money, but in the end, it's not working out for them. And that's what probably frustrates the Phillies fans more than anything. So if you're knocking the Phillies and saying the Phillies aren't going to be any good this year, you know, I look at Aaron Nola and Zach Wheeler. I think Matt Moore was a very quiet under the radar acquisition. He's going to provide them some innings. Archie Bradley, who for whatever reason, the Cincinnati Reds didn't want for this coming season, I think is going to help the Phillies bullpen. The Phillies bullpen probably is down in the doldrums of where the Mets bullpen is. That's going to be one of their Achilles heel. And you think of the reason the Phillies aren't going to make the postseason? Well, you could probably say that same reason in regards to their bullpen. But I could see the Phillies for the first time in a long time, was it, would be since 2011, having a winning record. I could see them going 84 and 78. And I think that's going to take some wins away from the Mets. It might take a couple wins away from the Nats and the Braves, but it's not going to hurt them because both of those teams are going to be in the postseason. But the Mets will have a very good season at 88 and 74. 
but they're going to be on the outside looking in when it comes to playoffs. And when we're talking about, hey, should they expand the playoffs, the postseason? I'm glad that baseball didn't do that. Yeah, I posted out something on Twitter the other day just once since the year of 2000 has the two teams with the best records in their respective leagues, the American League and National League, played in a World Series. And that was last year with the Dodgers and the Tampa Bay Rays in a truncated 60-game season. So I want to see the teams rewarded that have the best record. I want them to have the best chance to get to the World Series. They don't in a round-robin, you know, 16-team format. So I'm in the minority when it says I'm against the baseball expanded playoffs. I would like to see a universal DH because I just think it's time. I know, listen, we could talk about how the baseball purist and strategy, you know, there's no strategy involved when you got somebody that is unqualified to swing a baseball bat standing in a batter's box. And I blame baseball for that. I blame the individual players, the pitchers that say, hey, I'm a pitcher now and I'm not not even going to try to hit. I blame organizations down to the high school and little league level for keeping their pitchers from swinging a bat once they identify them as a pitcher. There's a reason there's no DH in, you know, there's a reason there's a DH in every other league but the National League because pitchers have quit hitting. And rather than blame baseball and blame the sanctity of baseball, why don't we blame pitchers who don't care about hitting? They can tell you they like to hit, but they, they, they sat there and took it when their coach said, hey, you're not going to swing a bat. I don't see any pitchers going out there taking batting practice. I don't see teams having whole pitching staffs taking batting practice. I think the number one thing that teams care about if a pitcher is batting is putting down a bunt. So if pitchers aren't going to try to be part of the team when it comes to batting, I don't want to see him bat. And baseball has done it to him, to itself. I blame baseball. I don't blame the way game baseball has changed. Baseball has done it to itself. They have made the starting pitcher almost obsolete. They've set it to where you don't need five good starting pitchers anymore. They've set it to where it's a bullpen game where you run in 98 to 100 mile an hour thrower after 98 to 100 mile an hour thrower. Baseball's changed itself. There's no rules that say you have to operate this way. But every team thinks it's smarter than the rest. Every team is set in this copycat setting of trying to do what the other teams do. They've done it to itself. So the fact that pitchers are not qualified to bat in the year of 2021 is an indictment on baseball. It's not a matter of opinion. I'm going to go over the other two divisions before I get into my controversial topics of the day. Once again, this is the Past Ball Show brought to you by JohnPLA.com, by St. Aloysius Church in Jackson, New Jersey, by two ways, one passion food truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. So the National League Central looks like it's going to be one of the weaker divisions in all of baseball. And I say that because the Cardinals went out there and got Nolan Arenado. If you look at the rest of the division, it's a matter of what's been subtracted from it as opposed to anything legitimate that's been added. The Pirates have traded away everything that wasn't tied down. The Cubs made a trade of you, Darvish, 
when you could say their starting pitching might have been one of their strengths this past season. The Reds were looking to save as much money as possible. The Brewers, who are in a situation where they could have made a run for the World Series last year, kind of sanded pat. They added Colton Wong and, of course, just signed Jackie Bradley. But the National League Central kind of has its way looking like the NFC East of the National Football League of last season. But the Cardinals, off the strength of the Arenado trade alone and putting him in the same lineup as Paul Goldschmidt, are going to be the favorites to win the division. I got them winning 87 games, but I got them finished in first place. I got the Brewers finishing second with 83 wins. The Reds finishing third with 82 wins. And the Cubs finishing fourth with 79 wins. So you ask me, for a division that I'm knocking, I'm saying it's not going to be very good. Why would I have three teams with an over 500 record and another team right on the peripheries of a 500 record? And I give this reason. I think the strength of that division is going to be their competition against each other. I don't think the Cardinals are that much better than the Brewers or the Reds or the Cubs. I don't think the Cubs are that much worse than the Reds and the Brewers and the Cardinals. I think those teams are going to beat up on each other. They're going to play each other 19 times over the course of what we expect to be a 162-game season, and they're going to beat up on each other. So you're going to, they're going to have even records against each other. They're going to also going to beat up on the Pirates, who I think are going to have one of the worst seasons we've seen in recent baseball memory. We're looking Tigers of a couple years ago. We're looking at the Orioles of a couple years ago. I got the Tigers winning 49 games and losing 113, the worst record in baseball. So I think there's going to be a lot of beating up on the Pirates, not just by the teams in the National League Central, but the other teams that play the Pirates over the course of the 2021 season. Now I look at the West, and I think the Dodgers are going to be great. I think the Padres are going to be great. And the Padres better be great. Because how many times do you look at the Padres and you say, hey, they're going for it, and how many times do they end up disappointing you? You know they got some star power in their offense from Tatis and Machado and all the other different contributors they're going to have. I, I think very quietly, if you're going to look to draft a player with your last pick in your fantasy baseball draft, watch out for Will Myers. Will Myers is going to be there. Nobody's going to take him in your draft. But Will Myers, I think, is going to have a really good year. Imagine him batting fifth or sixth in a lineup that's got Tatis and Machado, and you know, you're going to put Eric Hosmer somewhere. He continues to be a disappointment, but they got some good players. Trent Grisham, Cronenworth. You know, they signed the, uh, the Korean second baseman. This Padres team is going to score a lot of runs. And you look at a guy like Will Myers, a power hitter. He's going to get a lot of pitches to hit. And I tell you, the Padres, after getting Ian, um, you know, what do we call it? Ian Snell, I'm thinking Pirates of, what, 2011, 2010? Wow, I, I like the, the, the Ian Snell reference, even though I didn't even mean it. But they, they made the trade for Blake Snell with the Tampa Bay team. They made the trade with the Cubs for U Darvish. Denilson Lamay was one of our top pitchers last year. It's a shame that Mike Clevenger is going to miss the season with Tommy John surgery. But you look at the starting rotation, Joe Musgrove is a, a fourth or fifth starter. They should be able to give you six, seven innings every time out and make the pressure a little bit off of the bullpen, which has Pomerantz, which has Melanson, who they signed from the Braves. 
And don't sleep on Emilio Pagan. It's going to be he, – he was a very good reliever for them last year. He has really been over the last four or five seasons. Nobody's talked about him. The Padres are going to be good. But here's the other thing. They better be. Because, you know, this fool's gold thing that the San Diego team under A.J. Preller has thrown out there, they're trying to convince you they're going to be good. They were supposed to be good seven years ago. They were supposed to be good five years ago. They were supposed to be good three years ago. Last year they made the playoffs. This is the year they're supposed to take off. Now, I do have the Dodgers winning the division, 96 wins. I got the Padres with 95 wins right behind them. So this might come down to the last week. You know, maybe the Dodgers clinch on the last day or something. But I got the Giants at 79 and 83. The Diamondbacks are an interesting case. Some people have said, hey, uh, why, why are you higher on the Cubs? Why are you higher on the Reds? Why are you higher on the Phillies? And why are you even higher on the Marlins? Who, by the way, I have to finish in 78 and 84, last place in the NL East. That's not a bad record. So why am I so down on the Diamondbacks? And I think you could take all of those teams if you want, throw them all in a big bucket, swirl them around, maybe boil it up, and see which one comes up to the top. And that's going to be your bad team. I look at the Diamondbacks. You saw Madison Bumgarner pitch the other day, striking out six batters in two innings. Maybe he's back. I tell you, that would be a major step forward for that team if Mad Bum comes out and has a big year. He was awful in 2020. Do they have a ton of offense? Cattell Marte had a little bit of a down year last year. Looking at some of the other players on that team. Are the Padres that good? Are the Dodgers that good? I really believe they are. Diamondbacks are going to have a hard time beating them. So the question is going to be, what is it about the San Francisco Giants that I'm believing in? Am I really that big of a fan of Kevin Gosman? Am I really using the fact that I've been a Gabe Kapler supporter since before he was hired by the Philadelphia Phillies as their manager? Do I think Mike Yastrzemski is going to be about half as good as his grandfather, Carl? Do I think Buster Posey is going to come back and be one of the top catchers in baseball again? Those are all interesting things to bring up. But I look at the Giants and I don't think they're bad. And I also think that they're hitting the right part of their rebuild where we're going to start to see some valuable players that are going to come up and have something to do with the success of this team. At the Giants and their team last year. And I do think they have some good young players. Um... Like I said, Buster Posey coming back is going to help him. Joey Bart, is he going to contribute at the major league level this year? If he does, Buster maybe moves to first and platoons with uh, Brandon Belt. Austin Slater, if you're a Giants fan, you kind of know a little about. He looked really good last year. And I think it's easy to forget that the Giants just missed out on making the playoffs last year. Now, yes, the Brewers made it with a losing record. The Giants had the same record. And had one thing gone right for them, we would talk about Gabe Kapler being in the playoffs and me probably gloating about it, pissing a lot of people off that hate Gabe Kapler. That being said, I don't think the Giants are that far away. 
Now, do I think they're 15 games better than the Diamondbacks? I think every year when you do your series of predictions, there's one team that you're taking a chance on. And if I'm talking about one of the 30 teams that I'm taking a legitimate chance on, that's the Los Angeles Angels this year, which I talked about two shows ago. And there's one team that I'm down on. And this year, it's going to be the Arizona Diamondbacks. Does that mean that the Diamondbacks are going to go out there and, uh, you know, be as bad as I think so? I don't know. They could be. I just don't see a lot of excitement down there. I know they got a lot of players that are going to play with a chip on their shoulder. I think they could go out there and beat the Rockies, who are going to be horrible. Now, let's be real. What, what I'm welcoming this year is the fact that there's two teams in baseball that are going to be the two worst that haven't been the worst in a little while. And that's the Pirates and the Rockies. Taking the place of the Orioles and the Tigers, who are going to be better but still bad. And if I'm talking about the third worst team in baseball, I'm happy to say it's going to be the Texas Rangers. It's nice to not have the same teams that I'm, you know, think are going to be that bad each year. The Marlins and the Orioles and the Tigers. And yes, I still got the Orioles and the Tigers losing 90 plus games, and the Marlins still finishing last place. And then it's going to come down to what a lot of people say, and I mentioned this two shows ago, so I'm bringing this up again. You got the Athletics, you got the Rays. And there's people that'll say, wow, John, you just don't like those two ball clubs. And I don't like their way of business. And I don't think the Tampa Bay Rays did anything that would make you think they're going to be any better than they were last year. They lost Blake Snell. They traded him. Charlie Morton's gone. You're going to try to tell me that Rich Hill and Michael Waka are going to go out there and provide major innings for this ball club? I don't think so. Chris Archer was a good bring back. But I think this is the year the Rays go down. I got them 14 games under 500. And then I got the Oakland Athletics. A little bit better at eight games under 500. But once again, they went out there, they traded Chris Davis and his contract to free up some money so they could go dumpster diving and get the likes of Mitch Moreland and Sergio Romo and Jed Lowry. And I expect Jed Lowry to be good because, you know what, there's a curse sometimes when you put on a New York Mets uniform. And you understand why Jed Lowry didn't play over the course of two seasons with the Mets because it was the Mets. He was great for the Athletics in 2018, and I expect him to be decent and an integral part of the Athletics and their success for 2021. But they're not going to have a lot of it. I think the Mariners are going to take steps forward. I think they're going to finish better. I think the Astros are a 500 team. And I think the Angels are the best team in that division. So just a recap of my National League predictions. I got the, the Braves, Cardinals, and Dodgers winning the division with the Padres as the number one wild card. And the Nationals, the number two wild card. The Mets at 88 and 74. And the Phillies at 84 and 78. So now it's time to get into the controversial topics of the day. And I do want to thank everybody that's tuned in to this point. I'm going to throw some support for Coach McDermott of the Creighton college basketball team. Sometimes we all get caught saying something that is taken out of context. Sometimes we choose to use a word that the second we use the word, we realize we shouldn't have said the word. And when it comes to cancel culture, I think society is staying away from something that is very important to determine how 
guilty somebody is in regards to something they say. We're tending to disregard intent. And Coach McDermott, when he used the word plantation, was not using it in a racially motivated way. He chose his words terribly. The mention of the word plantation will offend some people, particularly blacks who understand what a plantation was going back to the days of slavery. But once again, when we're trying to assassinate somebody's character based off of something that they say, what are we not even thinking about? Intent. And listening to his quotes again, is it bothersome that he said what he said? Yes. But there was no intent there. The man is remorseful for what he said and his choice of words. The man accepted a suspension from Creighton. And then what do you have? You have an assistant coach that happens to be black that's going to try to make this out to be a bigger thing than it is. Now, we should all be careful with the language that we choose to use. But there has to be a separation between malicious statements and poor choice of words. I don't expect a coach of a college basketball team to be a wordsmith. I don't expect him to master the English language. I don't expect to hold him to the same standards as I do a college professor that's given a lecture in front of a thousand students. He acknowledged his mistake. The school made a statement basically saying, hey, they're not going to condone the use of the statement. And I'll throw the kudos out to the kids there. The players on that team, even even though they had a race-baiting assistant coach that was trying to make a mountain out of this little anthill, they decided they wanted to keep their coach. They didn't want their coach fired. And I hope the coach doesn't get fired, and I wish Creighton the best as it comes to the upcoming NCAA tournament. We'll also make a comparison to what you have over in hockey with the Rangers and Artemi Panarin. He makes a couple statements against Vladimir Putin, and all of a sudden there's a charge that he beat up this 18-year-old woman when he was 19 in Russia, that there's no, there's nothing that substantiates those allegations. Sounds like it's politically motivated. Sounds like somebody went out there to try to smear Artemi Panarin. And I'm rooting for Panarin. I hope that this ends up working out in the best for him. I hope that he ends up not getting charged with anything, especially if there is no further evidence. But once again, we're talking about the cancel culture. The general public likes to see its public figures brought down. That's what they want. If somebody has a name to them, they can't wait to see that person fired. They don't even need to be have a legitimate reason to have that person fired. They want to see that person fired because it makes them, in their own mundane and useless style of life, makes them for a second feel like they're better for their person that's out there and has a name to themselves. So I hope for the best for Panarin. I hope for the best. I hope that these allegations are proven to be as frivolous as they seem. 
and I'm out there rooting for Coach McDermott for Creighton. I think he made a he made a mistake. He made a bad analogy. He made a bad choice that he admits and he acknowledges. But still, people want to see him canceled because it makes them feel better about their miserable and lousy lives. So I'm going to spend a couple minutes talking about the Elam ending, which we'll see in the NBA All-Star game this weekend. And I think it's good. I think it's good in an exhibition format. And for those who don't know what the Elam ending is, it's taken away those mundane last two minutes of a basketball game. And what happens is you have a game, could be a 10-point lead with two minutes to go, and teams start fouling and taking timeouts and hurling up threes and hoping that the other team misses free throws. And we understand that based off of the particular game, whether it's a five-point lead or more or a seven-point lead or more or even more than that, the chances of that team that's trailing coming back and winning the game is less than 1%. Yet, the final two minutes of an average basketball game, whether it's NBA or college, tends to last between 20 and 30 minutes. You're talking about two minutes in clock time lasting between 20 and 30 minutes because of the constant clock stoppages, the constant fouling, the constant timeouts. It just ends up being a drag. And we talk about baseball. We talk about why baseball ends up lasting so long. We don't hear a lot of the same criticism of the last two minutes of your average basketball game. So the Elam ending, and this guy Elam, he's real big on himself. He, he loves to hear the sound of his own voice almost as much as John Pielli does. But he, he loves to talk about how he created the greatest ending to uh, a basketball game in the history of all basketball. Now, do I believe that much? No. But I do think it is an alternative and it's something that should be considered. We'll see it again in the All-Star game this year or, you know, this weekend with the NBA. And there's a, a target number in the last quarter. And the first team to get to that number wins. That's it. Game's over. You want to make the number 24? You want to make the number 30? It's basically disregarding what happens in the first three quarters. That's a con if you're talking against it. If you're against what would be the ending of these games, you know, if a team goes out there and has a 30-point lead after three quarters, then why should the game be 0-0 in the fourth quarter? But what this is set to do, and we expect these two all-star games picked by LeBron James and Kevin Durant, and Kevin Durant picks the all-star team, but he's not playing in the all-star game. So you think of this... Whether it's fair or not, I think these teams match up evenly enough. But why don't you just have one continuous game that has not just an Elam ending, but a set score? You have these two teams and you have a, a certain number. You want to pick in any all-star game because you know there's not going to be a lot of defense played. You want to pick 150 points. Then you go out there and you say, hey, first team to 150 wins. And there's no time. You can stop after a certain amount of time and have breaks. You can stop and have extra timeouts. You can have a half time if you want. But just set it to be 150 points 
and see how that ends up working out. I think that will be an extension to what we have referred to now as the Elam ending that could be something that we may consider for an NBA that's going against defense. They don't care about defense anyway. You want to say, hey, first team to 120 points, game's over. You eliminate that final two minutes and all the stuff that I just talked about before with timeouts and with fouls and with, you know, extended TV timeouts and last two minutes, last in 35 minutes. Why don't you just have a set score? First team to 120 during a regular season. Try it in college. Try it in a prep level or in high school. And if that ends up working, then that may be a way that we could score down the road. This is the Past Ball Show. Once again, brought to you by JohnPLA.com, by St. Aloysius Church in Jackson, New Jersey. By two ways, one passion food truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. I do want to thank everybody for tuning in. You can check out the Past Ball Show if you're interested on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, YouTube. You check me out on Twitter at John underscore Pielli. We'll be back with you next week. As always, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Hope you enjoy your weekend, your NBA All-Star game, your Major League Baseball spring training, and maybe some action in the NFL now. You're just going to hear a bunch of nonsense in regards to random quarterbacks that you're going to talk about going to different teams that they're not going to go to. God bless you, and as always, I'll see you on the other side.